0: My name is Andrew and welcome to MIR Meets. This 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 is an episode that I've been looking forward to a lot. Greg Sargent is a columnist for the Washington Post. He writes The Plum Line, which is a newsletter that covers US politics. He writes a lot about the state of American democracy and I've brought him onto the podcast today for a wide-reaching discussion of where the country is headed. What the left can do to boost their electoral success? What direction the right has been heading in over the past few years, and much, much more? All of that after I stop talking in the intro ends. Greg Sargent, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto this podcast.: Thanks for having me.: All right, so to begin, I just wanted to um, congratulate you for getting out so much content like. You you turn out so much content like every single day that I think that um, that's really amazing and I just want to ask you how do you manage to write so much so often? Well, it helps if
1: uh, there's a a deadline um, gun to your head, so (laughs) that focuses the mind. Let's put it that way. But um, we we try to we try to um, we try to produce regularly because there's so much going on and there's always something to talk about so the trick is to find an angle that is hopefully useful to people and so that's sort of how we think about it here
0: all right so i guess let's start with the economy because you wrote a very interesting piece about how the average voter views the economy and how that's probably going to be bad for Democrats in the upcoming midterms. So could you elaborate on some of the arguments that you made in that piece?
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes. This was yeah. interesting because we talked to a progressive pollster who I'm sure you all are familiar with, Sean McElwee, uh, who, who is a, pollster, he's a co-founder of a Data for Progress, a, a pretty well-known progressive outfit these days and he made an interesting point which was that voters' perceptions of the economy don't really exist in a vacuum they are deeply entangled with perceptions of whether democrats are actually doing something in congress now i don't know if that's true or not but it's certainly an interesting idea the the concept is basically that the Uh, The kind of constant infighting and ineffectiveness when it came to passing President Biden's build back agenda, which dragged on for the better part of a year, really helped color people's perceptions of the economy. Uh, And that could, if that's right, it could help explain why there's this kind of enormous uh, gap between voter perceptions of the economy and some of the realities of the statistics. I should say there's another uh, thing that has emerged from Democratic polling that's also interesting that kind of runs a little counter to that, which is that when voters are actually informed of specific metrics of economic improvement, then their general perception of the economy also changes. So I think this is all very complicated and unfortunately, in some ways, not that knowable. Um, but what's clear is that Democrats have a major problem on their hands and, and time to fix it is really running out.
0: Yeah, um, but that just begs the question, do you believe that the economy is currently doing well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think by many metrics, I mean, we just had 400,000 something jobs created today by certain, um, by certain metrics for sure. Although the most recent GDP numbers are obviously cutting against that picture, I think that it'd be hard to deny that the recovery has been astonishing compared to what many expected.
0: Yeah, but obviously it's astonishing in a very different way, in that there were a lot of predictions when it came to like what the stimulus was going to do that sort of didn't pan out. And I think you could make the argument that we sort of overshot a lot of the federal stimulus spending and that maybe. Contributing to our current inflation, but I guess what that like yeah, it's possible. Yeah. What? Yeah. Go ahead. I, I do think that it's
1: pretty understandable why they aimed high. Uh, the lessons from the last um, uh, the, the lessons from the last economic crisis dictated that the failure to aim high enough could create enormous human misery, and we were in a in a sort of. Uh, deep freeze, if you will, that was really kind of a unique situation. So I kind of understand why they aimed high.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, But I guess what that matters is like what we're going to do now when it comes to our inflation numbers and like the shrinking of GDP, and arguably some of the layoffs that have may, may have started within big tech and startup. Like, do you think that there is harbor for Democrats in terms of communicating messaging in the economy that will sort of click with people that might um, benefit them electorally in the upcoming midterms?
1: Well, I think a lot of it is tangled with whether there's another COVID resurgence and what perceptions are of the overall performance of Democrats. If there's sort of a general sense that things just aren't really in control, which of course, Republicans are keeping up a very aggressive drumbeat, along those lines when it comes to the border, when it comes to uh, even Ukraine, and, of course, still hammering away at Afghanistan. You know, it's very hard to disentangle the various voter perceptions that are out there. My general sense is that if there's a feeling that some sort of stability is returning, Democrats have a better chance at making a case about the economy than they will if that feeling isn't there. Do you think that some
0: stability will be returning?
1: I don't want to make a prediction. Things are things are pretty wild these days and pretty unpredictable.
0: Yeah. So let's move on to something that um, might be less um, focused on the current economy. Would you mind if we talked about the new right? Because um, you've written quite a bit about sure. it. Yeah. Yeah. So would you characterize the new right as like a faction that has a cross between far-right social politics and moderate economic politics?
1: You know, I'm one of the people that's somewhat sympathetic to the new right when it comes to economic policy. I did a piece recently, and, and, and a lot of progressives and liberals disagree with me on this. They're, they take a much harder line against, um, against the new right on, on the economy. I did a piece recently essentially saying that we should acknowledge that there are good things about the new populist rights Approach to the economy. One is that they don't treat GDP as, um, an, as the kind of be all and end all metric of national well being. Another is that they recognize that distributed outcomes and market outcomes are largely creatures of government and politics, which means that we can use government and politics to try to achieve better outcomes. I think it's a positive that the new right essentially believes that to be the case. That's really a fundamental break from the kind of pro-plutocracy, pseudo-libertarianism or genuine, I guess, maybe a better way to put it is uh, everyday libertarianism that has kind of characterized the Republican party for a long time. Um, On the other hand, it seems to me that they really do prioritize the cultural goals over the economic goals. And I think that's a reason that there is always going to be um, real hardship in creating kind of a cross ideological agenda that includes the new right and economic progressives.
0: Will you consider the new right to sort of be like the direction that Trump has tried to steer the Republican Party in over the past few years in terms of focusing on like salient far right politics while moderating? moderating on economic views?
1: I feel like it's a little hard to say, and we have to be very careful when talking about what Trump did in terms of impacting the new right and the Republican party. It's true that in 2016, he campaigned on a seemingly economically moderate set of policies. I mean, we heard endlessly that he was trying to campaign to Hillary's left in certain respects. Uh, But it's also true that once he got into power, he stocked his cabinet with a whole bunch of Wall Street plutocrats and delivered a multi trillion dollar tax cut to corporations and the wealthy.
0: So is it maybe it's a it's not a matter of policy, it's a matter of like how he was communicating to his base and like what he said he would prioritize rather than what he actually did
1: yeah and and I think we should here's here's another place where I'll give the new right a little bit of credit. I mean at least some of their thinkers. I think they've actually carved out a set of ideas and and tendencies and directions on the economy that Trump never actually carved out. If you think about it, trump you could look at trade policy as one area where superficially at least Trump really seems to try to carve out a new direction from much of the Republican Party. But on the other hand, it's not really clear he ever had real economic outcomes in mind for the outcome of those trade wars, right? A lot of it was for him about kind of xenophobic chest bumping and taking on China and grinding European weenie elites into the dirt. And, you know, it was never like he thought to himself, I really wanna get those jobs back into the heartland. He would say that, right? But that was never really the impetus. And, and that's why I think the, the plutocratic element in his cabinet and in the Republican party was able to carry the day over him because he never really cared about the economics. As long as he could go out there and say he was you know, punching you know, our European allies and taking on China, he didn't really care about actual outcomes. By contrast, you see places like, um, well, actually, I'm forgetting the name. There's a good think tank and there's a there's a good think tank out there. I maybe American Compass that's doing a lot of good work in terms of setting uh, in terms of laying out a concrete economic agenda for a, a, a forward looking new right. You have people like Rubio out there, at least to some extent, trying to talk about the economy in a new way. Maybe Josh Hawley, J.D. Vance to an extent, although he's a very flawed figure in many other ways. But again, I don't think we can really give, I guess, to, to take your earlier point a little further, I think if I understand you're saying that Trump kind of carved out these expectations and other people filled them in. I, I think that might be true. It's just so hard to say, though, because he lurched you know, so hard in a plutocratic direction once in office.
0: Yeah, but I guess um, Blaze, um, one of my co-hosts, interviewed David Shore a few months ago. And one of the things that David Shore said that like really stuck to me, um, like a few, like one of the things he said in that episode a few months ago is that the reason why Trump won in 2016 was because of a mix between racism and economic moderation from like a communications perspective. And then once he got in office, he would do a lot of like the the liber- like the like libertarian streak in the Republican government, the stuff that they wanted. But then he proceeded to not brag about that in the same way that he would brag about like being extremely anti-immigration. Um what do you consider that to be an accurate characterization of like Trump's position?
1: I mean, there are a lot of claims there. So one by one, I think it's probably true that Trump's pretensions to economic moderation relative to to GOP plutocracy helped in 2016. Um, I don't really know how much we can truly gather from that because Hillary Clinton, and this is rarely acknowledged, but she ran on an extremely progressive economic agenda, probably the most progressive economic agenda of any democratic nominee in in decades. Now, what people would say to counter that is that they never advertised on jobs, they never did this, and there's always some way you can come up with to make that claim. And I frankly don't really know what I think on that. I, I think probably they could have done a little more on the economy, uh, I don't know if we really know whether voters made a decision based on perceptions of Trump's economic populism or not. It's all very hard to disentangle, but it, it, it's possible. Uh, the second claim, I think, was that, um, that Trump tends to, tend as president, boasted about immigration and did not boast about his um, policies that actually sold out on economic populism. That's a complicated assertion, right? Because I I think he probably dozens of times went out there and said his tax cut was the greatest thing for the economy ever. And he constantly talked about how great the stock market was. Um, and so I don't know how you'd square those things with the claim that he downplayed his economic sellout. He didn't. It's true that he didn't go out there and say, hey, everybody, I'm passing these tax cuts that are really good for rich people. But he did say, hey, I just did this tax cut and it's, you know, going to do gangbusters for the economy. So I don't know. That's a tough one.
0: Yeah. So maybe it's like these are things that are just really hard to disentangle and fully understand what is causing what.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you could probably say that David Shore is right in the sense that he didn't advertise the overtly plutocratic elements of what he did.
0: Okay, would you? Okay, so going back to the new right, would you attribute many of the democratic losses, like the Democratic Party's losses, to like when it comes to people that are campaigning on a like an agenda that's closer to that of the New Right? Would you attribute many of the Democratic Party's losses to those people, to their inability to fully articulate their opposition to Republican positions on social issues? Which losses do you mean? Like the House losses? Well, that and like, for example, uh, Glenn Youngkin in 2021, for example.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very complicated case. The, the, I certainly would say that it's true that Democrats under, and I did too, and a lot of liberals did. I'm certainly guilty of it. Underestimated the degree to which the closed schools were an issue for people. Uh, I think there's no question about that. Um, and a study after the election done by uh, democratic operatives who had worked on the race found that the school's issues were very complicated. They weren't necessarily critical race theory oriented. They were very much tang- Any sort of sense of voter perceptions of those types of cultural issues were deeply entangled with anger over school closings. I think it's hard to say what to what degree mo- voters were directly motivated by the cultural stuff. One thing I think you can say, which is kind of an interesting nuance, is that Republican voters in Republican areas, not even in the areas where this was contested, were energized by uh, cultural um, attacks on Democrats. So for instance, I believe there was some data that showed that in the rural areas where turnout was very juiced up in Virginia, like in the Western part of the state, uh, you had, a lot of voters very revved up by what they were hearing on Fox News about what was going on, supposedly going on in classrooms that were very far away from from their own uh, from their own communities. So here again, it gets very complicated. If you, if you want to talk about the impact of the culture wars over critical race theory and and other curriculum or, uh, questions, you have to separate it into did it drive swing voters to Republicans in the areas where these were contested from the question of whether it drove Republican turnout in other areas that where these things weren't even contested.
0: Yeah, so another thing that's sort of hard to disentangle cause and effect.
1: Yeah, but I mean, to to answer your other question about whether Democrats have effectively rebutted it,
0: I think not. Um, And that's
1: something that I've actually kind of argued a little bit with the popularists about, um, I guess I should define popularism for your listeners.
0: Yes, popularism. please.
1: There's a school of thought um, among some liberals that, and it's generally called popularism, colloquially anyway, that if Democrats kind of avoid some of these cultural issues, they're, they're better off and they, if they stick to, um, you know, bread and butter issues that where their positions are popular and and really minimize any sense that they're associated with the activist left or uh, professional class progressives who use kind of jargony woke language that they'll be better off. Uh, I I think that um, that case is somewhat true in the sense that Democrats really do need to take uh, seriously people's concerns about curricula and, and address them. And, but at the same time, I also think they could be making a much more robust case for why they're actually, some of those positions are actually not that crazy. Um, If you look at what happened out, there was a Michigan state Senator named Mallory McMorrow, who uh, gave a, a big speech attacking a Republican who had called her a groomer. Um, And it went viral, and she essentially laid out a series of very strong positions on these questions, saying, you know, unabashedly that she defends gay and trans rights uh, as as a matter of basic humanity, and that Republicans who are doing things like calling Democrats groomers and trying to restrict the teaching of certain types of issues involving gay and trans rights really are dividing the country and 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 harming people and I, it seems to me that that creates a template for how to talk about this stuff i mean democrats can't avoid these battles they have to wade into them and say what they believe that doesn't mean they can't denounce certain forms of quote-unquote wokeness when they are excessive they can do that and they can also uh state forcefully their own convictions on these questions. But that, to answer your question, yes, they have not, they certainly have not successfully uh, prosecuted these battles.
0: Yeah. You sort of mentioned in that article that there's like a middle ground that I'm going to quote right now. Quote, one that calls out certain rhetoric and analysis about topics such as gender identity as excessive while advocating for a defense of minority rights. Would that be like your characterization of what Democrats can do to sort of solidify their positions without losing any of their base.
1: Yeah, and I should be clear. I, I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do. There will, there will be, it'll be contested. There will be arguments about this. So for instance, some of the liberals who are, you know, uh, sympathetic with popularists might be more inclined to say that this or that particular classroom or curriculum uh, item is overly woke or is, you know, genuinely destructive than others might. But I think that's okay. I think we can argue about that. And, and each politician, each Democrat politician can settle where he or she is on those questions. In other words, can say, okay, I think this type of uh, curriculum uh, material is okay. I don't think that type of curriculum material is okay but also while parsing out that distinction also taking the case strongly to Republicans about what Republicans are doing on this stuff going you know I think a lot of Democrats could be much more forceful in in denouncing these laws that are being passed in state legislatures across the country and they could certainly be much more forceful in, in attacking Republicans for the you know Deranged tactic of of calling everyone who disagrees with them on these issues groomers and pedophiles. I simply don't see why Democrats can't do that while also figuring out where they stand on some of these curriculum questions.
0: Yeah. So it's um, it's a, maybe it's a matter of that does not fully contradict the popularist position. Yeah. Because yeah, doesn't. that's yeah. right.
1: I think that's exactly right. And and. I don't, and sometimes, and I, I just don't see why we can't sort of do a little of both.
0: Yeah. Um, so switching, switching back to the new right, um, are there like any sort of economic positions on the new right that like you are on board with to a greater extent compared to like, old, like the old guard conservatism expressed by someone like David French, for example?
1: That's a tough question to answer. I think it's hard to answer it, except in, in sort of a more general way, right? So one of the hallmarks of the new rights thinking is that they're way more prone to supporting things like industrial policy than your sort of standard issue conservative is. And I'm sympathetic with that as a general matter. Um, it sort of depends though. So for the new right, well, let me back up. You could, you, you could look at industrial policy as something that you want to do to uh, ensure that we're, I don't know, better prepared to handle pandemics, right? So industrial policy could include incentivizing certain types of production to prepare for certain eventualities, meaning we're less vulnerable to supply chain issues in the event of some sort of future uh, disaster. That seems to me to be, you know, something that right and left certainly can agree on. On the other hand, there's a component of new right thinking that sees industrial policy as a weapon to really disengage from the world. And I'm frankly, really not much of an an expert on the economy or on globalization. But as a general matter, it seems to me that some of that type of thing comes from a bit of a bad place. It seems to want to disengage for the sake of disengaging, as opposed to for producing better outcomes for workers. And this is why, and this is a critique you'll hear from a lot of people like Mike Konzal Konzal from the Progressive Institute, um, uh, sorry, the Roosevelt Institute who's a very well-known progressive economist who who will say that, okay, well, the new right says that they're pro-worker and they wanna pull back supply chains from China and and invest in manufacturing jobs that's all well and good but what about a minimum wage hike what about strengthening unions what about uh, universal health care all things that are very pro-worker they're the new right is mostly kind of out to out to lunch on that stuff and and so it, it makes it a little hard to to see their industrial policy as being pro-worker in any kind of um economic sense, or I should at least say as being motivated by that as a goal.
0: So it's another thing where it's kind of hard to disentangle um, in terms of what their motives are?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think they really do see disentangling from the world as, as an important goal in and of itself. And I guess I just don't see that as being as important as achieving good outcomes for workers is.
0: All right. Last question. What what sort of communication like from a communication standpoint, what should the democrat what should the democratic party focus on in terms of its messaging if the economy keeps if the economy gets substantially worse?
1: Oh boy. <laughs> that is a hard question to answer. I you know, I really don't know how to answer that. I mean, if the economy gets substantially worse, then I think Things are going to get uh, irredeemably bad for Democrats, and I don't know if messaging could do anything about it.
0: All right. Greg Sargent, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.